0: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. As a member of the U.S. National Security Council, Victor Cha flew over the DMZ, separating North and South Korea in 2007, following negotiations with Pyongyang. He writes in Korea, A New History of South and North, his latest book with co-author and previous podcast guest, Ramon Pacheco Pardo, about how he was struck by the environment on both sides of the border. The North had barren fields, no cars, and windowless homes, the South gleaming skyscrapers and the global city of Seoul. How did these two countries come apart and then travel down such different paths? and perhaps was a sentiment in ordinary Koreans in South and North about eventually coming back together again. Victor Cha is professor of government at Georgetown University and holds the Korea chair at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. He is a former director for Asian Affairs at the White House National Security Council. Ramon Pacheco Pardo is professor of international relations at King's College London and the KFVUB Korea chair at Free University of Brussels. The three of us talk about Korea's pre-World War II history as a unified nation, their eventual split and divergence, and how feelings about unification may have changed. A quick correction, time of interview, Korea, a new history of South and North had yet to be released in the U.S., but Rohan has informed me, since we talked, that the book is now out. Now, on with our conversation. So, Victor and Armand, thank you so much for for coming on the show today. Um, Victor, I might want to direct my first question to you, at least first. Um... You know, the book, and I know authors don't get to get to determine their own titles at times, but the book is marketed as a, as a new history um, of Korea. What do you think is currently missing from the way we talk about the history of the Korean Peninsula?
2: Um, so I would say a couple of things. The first is that I, I certainly have not come across the history of Korea, the two Koreas uh, in which you've had authors... Approaching the history from um, an American and a European viewpoint, um, which I thought was uh, interesting and was one of the reasons why uh, I was very excited about doing this project with my co author, Ramon. Um, uh, the other is that I really like the way the book uh, integrates the history of the two Koreas chronologically by chapter. So um, the, the, there's a and Ramon did a lot of this a really great job of sort of talking about um, what happened in South Korea, for example, in the 1960s and 70s and then and then talking about what happened in North Korea. And why that's interesting is that you sort of see if you think about the paths of the two countries as they start out, they they you know they're at, at the beginning in the 60s and 70s, they're kind of somewhat at parity, you know, both of them being strongly supported by their Cold War patrons, right? China and the Soviet Union on one side, United States and Japan on the other. Uh, but then, as you start to hit the '80s, you start to see them diverging. Like they start to grow apart. South Korea continues to accelerate forward on a very positive upward path. North Korea starts to head, head on hit down into a decline that just gets steeper and accelerates faster and faster, such that by the end of the book, you see how how disparate these two countries are in terms of where they've ended up. So I think that's also kind of new and interesting. And then the last thing I would say is that uh, part of the reason we wrote this is, um, um, we thought that uh, it's been a while since there's been a book um, about um, uh, the history of modern Korea. Um, Uh, at least a decade, if not more. And uh, so we saw this as a good opportunity. And the last thing I'll say, I know I said two things, but there are really four things. The last thing I'll say is that um, this book also looks at those things about the history of Korea that are of interest to younger generations. So things like um, K-pop and K-culture, the LGBTQ plus movement, women's rights, uh, things that we haven't seen sort of in these broader general
0: histories of Korea. So I think that also makes it new and different. Um, Ramon, v- Victor brought up an interesting point in his answer, which is um, kind of combining the American and European perspectives on Korea. I mean, is the European perspective on Korea different than, <laughs> than the American one?
1: I, I would say so, yes. I mean, uh, to and of course, the U.S. has had a far stronger uh, influence and relationship with with the, with the Korean Peninsula, which is the US and South Korea alliance, is, is is a defining characteristic of of uh, South Korea today. Uh, not only from a security and a foreign policy perspective, but it also influences of course, uh, domestic affairs in in, in Korea. And, and that's not the case with South Korea with uh, Europe uh, that has a a different type of relationship, uh, the interest on the Korean Peninsula in general is far more recent. Uh, I would say that uh, oh. really it only started uh, from the 1990s and in some countries really from, from the 2000s. Uh, and it was very much uh, culture driven, of course, uh, the economy matter in uh, South Korea's economic growth. Uh, but many European countries were not necessarily uh, touched by it again uh, until the early 2000s. Uh, so that's a different sort of relationship. And also, of course, the history of, of, of Europe is different, right? So, the history of Europe, we had countries in Central Eastern Europe that were very similar to North Korea until the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, they were uh, communist regimes, uh, dictatorial regimes. So, the perception of the Korean Peninsula and the history of the Korean Peninsula, recent history, is very different uh, because their starting point is really uh, how they have this strong relationship with the communist bloc, uh, including North Korea. Uh, and how all, all these uh, kind of disappear from the 1990s onwards, when like South Korea became much more important. But then, uh, and vice versa, if you look at the Western European countries, some of them, like, like my own country, Spain, have similar history to South Korea. We were poor dictatorships, essentially, that later on retail uh, uh, developed countries uh, and also became uh, democracies. So the way you see South Korea and also the relationship between the two Koreas uh, across to be different than if you come from the U.S., which has really, uh, far more influence, uh, not as in the Korean Peninsula, but also at the global level. Um, so I'd like to start talking about the history
0: um, of Korea, this is, uh, the history that's kind of covered in your book. Um, I mean, you start with the with the pre-war period, war meaning Second World War, um, where uh, Korea is kind of the, the nexus for a whole bunch of imperialist um, countries jockeying for position. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about about that period, about when when Korea was kind of the um, uh, was kind of like the the center point for all this kind of imperialist jo- imperialist jockeying. Um, maybe maybe Ramon can go first on that question.
1: Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about it, but then I think uh, Victor can actually. Um, what, what we see is that the geographical position of uh, korea when it was a unified country to the two koreas uh, is right at the center of all these uh, big powers of course historically this had been china and japan uh, from the late 19th century early 20th century you see obviously the growing influence of, of of japan and then the colonization of of korea uh, but you also see the increasing interest that russia was having in in, in this part of the world uh, in a part of the world that maybe Russia was uh, kind of ignoring historically, like she was looking more at uh, the European uh, part of the of, of the country. But you see also from the late 19th century, also early 20th century fighting this war uh, against Japan to try to gain influence and a foothold uh, in the region. I think this is one of the issues that I wanted to showcase uh, in, in, in the book uh, that Korea was at the center of this uh, different uh, imperial powers trying to, to extend their influence uh, throughout the whole of uh, Asia. Uh, and in the case of Japan, uh, Korea was, for example, the, the starting point, but it wasn't the, the ending point, as we saw later on in the Second World War. in, in the case of Russia, it never got to have the influence he would have liked to have, but certainly part of his uh, uh, view of global this uh, during this time period. Uh, was to try to also become more of an Asian power that historically maybe hadn't gained?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. The only thing I, uh, the only thing I'd add to what Ramon just described is, um, in addition to the these these sort of geopolitical balance of power currents that were swirling all around Korea at, in the late 19th century, this was also happening at a time when Korea internally was greatly. Um, Conflicted, you know, it was in a, its own transition of trying to determine whether it would modernize along the lines of the West, or whether it would stick to sort of traditional Confucian roots, or some combination of the two. Um, the 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 last dynasty, the last royal dynasty in Korea, was extremely. It was corrupt. It was inept. There was a great deal of inefficiency. And so, one of the points we tried to make in the book is when you have this combination of a country that sits sort of at the uh, geostrategic intersection of the major imperial powers of Asia. And at the same time it's internally uh, not well put together, it's internally conflicted. Um, then, then you know you have this outcome where it becomes the fate is determined by this balanced power politics among these uh, among these big powers in the region. And that was Korea's fate in the late 19th century. And then throughout the book, we describe how at least in South Korea, and to an extent in North Korea, by their own different um, sort of non-traditional means, Korea has become a much stronger country, uh, in, in internally a much stronger country. Its geography never changes, uh, but it's become a much stronger country.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about then, um, then that period, the post-war period, um, and uh, I guess what the two Koreas, I guess primarily South Korea, but you usually hear more about North Korea too, what these two countries did to make themselves more, more secure, um, stronger, stronger intrinsically—I think is which is a word intrinsic value which you're going to use in your book—and um, not just the strategic geopolitical value. What did these two countries actually do? Um, and Maybe uh, Victor can go take the lead on this question first.
2: So uh, I'll talk about North Korea, and then Ramon can talk about South Korea. Um, so you know what North Korea did—I mean they did two things really. I mean. Uh, before the end, uh, the post-war through till before the end of the Cold War, um, you know, North Korea invested a lot of its, in, in, in its conventional military and it had a great deal of support from China and the Soviet Union. Um, that allowed it to do quite well, both economically and in terms of their military capabilities. Um, the estimates of um, GDP per capita, I think, between the two Koreas, was seen to be about even if if the if not that the North Koreans were ahead through the late 1970s. I mean, so you know, quite a long period of time, three decades almost uh, after the end of the Second World War, um, <clears throat> and, and and that allowed North Korea to make itself much stronger. Um, after the end of the Cold War, uh, North Korea chose a different path to make itself stronger. Uh, economically, it became weaker. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, politically, it grew more and more closed. But then it chose, to, you know, it chose the path of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons to make themselves as strong as they could make, at least in one dimension of state power. Even though they seem to be failing in every other dimension of state power. So, um, so you know, in in many and, and after the end of the Cold War, that generous uh, uh, patron assistance that they were getting from China. And the soviet union started to dry up i mean not completely but dried up a lot compared to what they had during the cold war um and so that was the only way they became stronger in quotation marks
0: is by building weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons um and i guess i will turn over to victor as i to, to remote to talk about south korea but i want to add maybe a second question when we talk about south korea which is um you know when when does it really become clear that South Korea had had overtaken the North in terms of economic strength, cultural power, whatever, whatever, whatever success metric you want to use? Um, when did it really become clear, I think, to everybody that South Korea had overtaken or
1: or had very clearly beaten the North? So, so I think the book we focus on the on the 1980s period, and and not only because, uh, of course, it's one of the the Seoul. Uh, Olympic Games, and that was really a coming out party for for for, for South Korea uh, as a whole. Uh, but also because by then you start to see how uh, even countries in the communist block want to attract their South Korean investment. Uh, they try to strengthen economic relations with, with South Korea. So, of course, the period will time when It also becomes uh, a democracy, which psychologically obviously uh, creates a big uh, difference between the two. Uh, between the two Koreas, but also in the way they are perceived at the uh, at the global level, uh, and I think this is uh, the decade when you just start to see uh, South Korea pulling uh, really uh, apart from 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 North Korea in an economic uh, sense. Uh, I think culturally, uh, I mean, how did started in the late nineteen nineties uh, the, the Korean wave in in countries just uh, China, Taiwan, or. Or, or Japan, as well as, as, as Southeast Asia. So I think culture also from the 1990s is happening. But one thing is just in the book, for example, as well as then in the 1980s, when South Korea is becoming more uh, globally known, as I said, for example, with the Seoul Olympics, uh, it starts to showcase uh, Korean culture in, in traditional culture uh, in, in a way that uh, um, it starts to make it better known uh, overseas. And this is done by, by South Korea, not by, uh, by, by North Korea. Uh, and and this links to uh, your uh, or original or question, right? About the different trajectories. I think one thing which was in the book is uh, the combination of domestic and foreign factors in, in the case of of the Jew and peace, uh, but especially in the case of, of South Korea, because of course it was a more open uh, country as well, even if she was dictatorial during this uh, period of time, 1960s, seventies. Uh, But we stress the the relationship uh, with the U.S., of course, when it comes to external factors and how this actually helped uh, South Korea from an uh, economic point of view, not only from a uh, security and foreign policy uh, point of view because of the struggles with the U.S. economy, also with the uh, Japanese economy as well, after the two countries normalized relations as Korea uh, and and Japan in the 1960s. Uh, But also the domestic level, we see this concerted effort by government and uh, the private sector, the big table that we all know about today or uh, Samsung LG Estate, uh, for example, uh, to try to drive economic growth in a way that makes the South Korean economy competitive uh, at the international level. So instead of trying to uh, shut down the country to foreign direct investment and to competition, uh, with uh, 40 firms, uh, South Korea takes the, the opposite approach, which is to try to make his companies uh, globally uh, competitive. And, and it was really successful to this in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, when many of these firms start to move up the value chain and start to become more innovative, rather than simply uh, producing more cheaply what what others, uh, what other countries or firms in other countries. Had already invented before, whether this was uh, the U.S. Or, or Western Europe or uh, or Japan or some other country. Uh, and I think one other aspect that we highlight as well is, is the, the the resilience uh, of the South Korean people, uh, and also the the generation of the South Korean people as as well how they uh, push uh, the country forward from economic point of view. Uh, certainly, obviously, from a from a political point of view, they were key in the transition to to democracy, but Uh, if we focus more on the economic side and the cultural side, I think this was a key driver in the 1980s, 1990s uh, onwards. Uh, And and one last thing, maybe to to point it as well, is that uh, sometimes referred to towards the beginning of disasters, how this was noticed uh, by by foreign countries, Uh, and not only countries in the the West uh, during the Cold War, but also central Eastern European countries. Uh, And I want to just stress this, because back in the 1980s, uh, these countries, and European, even the, the Soviet Union, uh, uh, from the end of some words, uh, ideologically, they were still aligned with North Korea, but you see how they're looking at South Korea as not only the the future of their economic growth, or the type of political relations they want to have with the rest of the world, uh, but I from an from an, um, uh, from, a point of, from an economic uh, point of view, they this as, as a present uh, for their countries. Um,
0: so Victor, I wanna obviously you, you have been uh personally involved in setting um Korean policy for the US. Um, you met with officials on both sides, including North Korea. Um, you know, from your I think from your kind of personal involvement in in advising on policy, setting policy, meeting meeting people on both sides of the of the Korean border, um you know what? What are some kind of the, the lessons you learned or insights you gleaned from from that experience that maybe didn't make their way into the newspapers or, I guess, or you know, today's history books on on the subject.
2: I think it, it's an interesting question. I would say the um, the impression that sticks with me the most is. Um, one time when I was coming back from North Korea on official travel, coming back from North Korea to South Korea. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd seen sort of the destitution in North Korea uh, as, as I was driven from Pyongyang to the DMZ to cross over and then fly in a helicopter, a military helicopter into, into Seoul. Um, and then as I got closer to Seoul, you know, I'd seen the destitution in North Korea, and I get as I get closer to Seoul, you just see, you know, the skyline of South Korea. And the thing that struck me then, and still sticks with me today, is that this, it, it, you know, this there are two Koreas, but they're both Koreans. They're both populated by Korean people. The Korean people are still the same people in the north and the south. Um, and this is what opportunity versus. Um, uh, bad politics can do to a country, I I mean, can do to a people. I mean, there culturally is nothing different between North and South Koreans that prevent them from both succeeding, except the politics, uh, that emerged on the peninsula and and that has led the North in the direction of this going and the South in the direction that it's ascending. It was both, you know, it was a very meaningful and sad realization at the same time that this is what politics can do to a people. This is like the real effect of what politics can have on two people, two countries, um, um, uh, when the people are exactly, exactly the same. You know that 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 will never leave me. That will always stick with me. And uh, that is also why I believe that eventually, uh, you know, if and when the division ends and there is unification, uh, North Koreans, if they're given the same opportunity, will do very, very well for
0: themselves. I mean to 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 stick on that point of of um, I guess I guess the bad politics kind of um, you know uh, obviously North Korea is um, isolated it's poor um, the economy <laughs> saying saying it doesn't work very well sounds like a big understatement um, but from a regime standpoint um, the Kim family appears to be re- like pretty secure in their position. Um, probably more secure in their position than in other totalitarian dictatorships you can see around the world. Um how has the how has that family in that regime been able to secure its position, you know, given all of North Korea's challenges? Or maybe is this a mistake? are, are we are we seeing it as more stable than it actually is?
2: Um, so I think we always have to be careful when we talk about, you know, stable North Korean regime, because, um, you know, the North Korean, I think we say this in the book, the North Korean regime is stable up until the day it's not, uh, and then the day that it's not stable, everybody will have said, oh yeah, we knew this was coming, right? Uh, We knew that, we knew that they were teetering on the brink of collapse. so I think we always have to be careful when we say stable. Having said that it is a fact that you know this regime has long outlasted the collapse of many other regimes like it since the end of the Cold War. Um, um, you know, why is this the case? Well I think in part it's because even though um, they don't get as much support as they used to during the Cold War, China is always there for North Korea and it will always be there for North Korea. China sees has, does, has decided, that it is not in their interest to see a unified Korean peninsula with a democratic um, Korea sitting right on its border. And so they will continue to support North Korea. They won't help it enough to thrive, but they will help it enough to survive. Um, And that I think has been one factor. The other is that the regime has ruled with an iron fist. Um, It has has captured uh, an elite group of about uh, a million um, uh, of party leaders military officials um, um, family uh, and then everybody else is just put to waste and so that the notion of a, of a revolution against an illegitimate leadership is very difficult to imagine in North Korea because people are just looking for to survive they're just looking um, to to uh, keep a roof over their head to keep two meals, a day on the table and when you're, and when they're in such destitute condition, it's hard for them to imagine or the notion of some sort of popular, popular revolution. You can never say nothing. It won't happen. Nothing is impossible. Um, but if I had to pick two factors, I would say those two are what allow the regime to continue as long as it has. Having said that, again, it's stable
0: up until the day it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to shift over to talk about reunification, which 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 gets a whole chapter um, in your book um, and how and and there it, it, I want to know kind of one interesting observation that I hadn't really thought of, which was um, that that more dovish attitudes towards North Korea, like the sunshine policy, actually reflected a bearish view on unification and South Korea's ability to actually absorb um, North Korea, which, which, which was an interesting observation that I hadn't thought of. Um, but let's let's talk about reunification policy, and perhaps um, we can start with Ramon for this question, is how um, attitudes towards reunification have um, changed in South Korea over the past several
1: decades. Yes, I just say, we have a full chapter on that, and I think the idea uh, behind this chapter was actually to show that there's not a single view or approach in, in, in the South, certainly, uh, towards uh, unification, but also uh, at the same time to show how these different approaches, so why, what is driving them, right? What are the reasons that there are these different approaches? Uh, and I think what uh, we try to uh, highlight as well yeah, is that, as you say, with this more those approach uh, based on dialogue uh, mm-hmm. and towards unification. What you have is this view is uh, can South Korea actually absorb the North? Because we call it unification, but, but since we saw with uh, Western Eastern Germany, essentially what we'd be talking is uh, our South Korea uh, driving the process, but also paying for the process for the, for, for the most part. Uh, and I think there is this uh, idea among certain um, groups in, in, in South Korea. Uh, that maybe this is uh, not going to be as easy as it would have seemed you know, uh, and maybe to the 1980s and maybe uh, early 1990s. Uh, and, and therefore, that South Korea has to take a, a, a cautious, uh, long-term approach, uh, moving towards reconciliation uh, first, uh, trying to shape uh, North Korea and make it change before actually reunification can, can, can take place. Uh, and then I'm, I'm oversimplifying it to it here but then you have the more um conservative uh, a, a approach uh, which uh, focuses on 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 this idea this is uh what uh, eventually needs to happen right if between the two koreas but also that uh, north korea is not going to be accepted uh, the way it is right the north korea needs to needs to change uh, and that it is not uh, enough uh, to think about history the, 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 Millennial history of um, uh, Korean unified country and think, okay, we'll just unify uh, because that's uh, historically we're a single country, but also in be a change in, in, in North Korea. We, we also point out as well that uh, more recently, you know, have been South Korean leaders and South Korean groups that had more willing to certification as an opportunity. And I, I would think this matters because there has been this change in discourse, right, among certain groups that, from an economic point of view, uh, it would be good if, if, if Korea were unified. Obviously, there would be a, a heavy cost, but there would be potential economic uh, advantages. And certainly, also would also have a, a bigger country with another uh, population as well, which uh, could be uh, would be uh, more powerful. So so uh, that's why we're the, the whole uh, chapter, right? To, this is essential to understand not only the past history of 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 korea uh, but also uh, the present position of the of the two koreas and what the future uh, may hold Uh, there's also an interesting uh, survey that is included there but i'll I'll let victor talk about it because it was led by by csis because one other thing we try to do uh, in the book is say, okay what do north koreans uh, have our unification, but but because yeah, I think I also said yes, yes, I need the survey on this. So I think it's better if you if you're neat on this part. Sure. Uh, so um, one of the things that we did
2: was we did some very uh, s- micro surveys. They're not they're not full surveys uh, to uh, try to understand how North Koreans think about unification and the. It was actually quite interesting because um, you know there is. Uh, a view in South Korea, particularly among younger generations, where they don't really identify with unification uh, because the the division of Korea, the Korean War itself, are all things that they read about in history books. Um, It's not anything that they've experienced like the older generation, their grandparents, or their great-grandparents might have experienced. Um, And so their views on unification are ambivalent at best in some cases, negative because they associated it with the economic cost of absorbing the North, which means taxes, which means uh, unemployment, uh, things of that nature. Uh, but when we uh, looked at how North Koreans thought about unification, relatively speaking, they were more enthusiastic than their brethren in the South, um, and they were interested in it. In, you know, straight, interestingly enough, they their support for unification was not what you would think it would be about. Like the primary factor wasn't sort of economics in the sense of unifying with the richer South is good for the North. That was not what motivated it. And it wasn't so much the security concerns, the notion that, oh, if we unify, then we don't have to worry about the United States threat anymore. Actually, the, the most um, um, interested reason for North Greens had to do with ethnicity. Uh, ethnic unity ethnic nationalism um, which really doesn't hardly registers at all in the south I mean there's some in the south who believe that but the south uh, for in general South Koreans take a much more materialistic pragmatic approach um, to the concept of unification while north Koreans look at it in, in, in a more idealistic um, uh, frame that is infused by ethnic nationalism
0: um well let's 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 take this point about about culture and and I guess do a very awkward pivot into talking about Korea's success in the, in the cultural industry is a question for, for Ramon. I mean, this is, um, I think I asked you this question the last time you're on the show. Um, but obviously Korean culture is, um, dominant right now, um, especially for a country and economy of its size. Um, obviously we have, we have K dramas and squid game. We have K pop. Um, and, um, so Korea has had a lot of success in the cultural industry. Uh, but I guess, can the success, like, are there, are there lessons for this success for other countries? Can, can this, well, can the success be emulated? And I guess going back to Korea, can the, can the boom in Korean
1: content continue? No, that's, that's a question. Well, I think that it would actually make sense because one of the reasons behind the success of, of, Korean culture is that it makes Korean roots, but also with a global outlook, right? So as you know, that's actually what Victor was saying, that it's not based on, on, on ethnicity and making something that is only Korean, but it would be difficult to understand where it is. I would ask you a question on, uh, I, I think so. I mean, in my case, uh, uh, I, I lived in, in, in South Korea for the first time 20 years ago, actually, when I, when I was a student uh, at, at university. So, and, and back then, uh, there was this discussion uh, within the country, whether uh, the Korean wave would continue to be successful after the initial success in, in Northeast and Southeast Asia. It was uh, starting to be known in some places, uh, in some countries, for example, in, in, in Latin America, and even people from the region who actually were interested in Korean culture. But uh, there was this belief that maybe this was over and that some of the country or uh, in the region, for said, the region would be. We would become the cultural powerhouse uh, across uh, across Asia. Simply, uh, for example, this is when 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 China was yeah. in the WTO that made Chinese yeah. uh, modern culture would become uh, more popular in South Korea. Modern culture, and then we saw, of course, the, the globalization of Korean culture. And when when uh, style <laughs> took over the world, there was also uh, a discussion along this lines. Right, is this the peak of 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 K-pop? Really, and not going to be able to uh, to to reach these uh, heights uh, or, or anymore, uh, but then of course I don't know. i like Korean movies, Korean dramas, uh, and I think uh, there are a couple of of reasons behind this success that other countries have tried to learn. Uh, uh, one of them, if you look at Korean culture, uh, contemporary culture mixes very well, well Korean roots with uh, themes that are. And, uh, universal. I'm not only talking about love, but you can also include inequality. And uh, for example, because that w- that was parasitic. That w- that was just about already was about um, a inequality, in the rich and the poor within Korea. But the, the, well, anyone outside of the country could could uh, see what this uh, thing was and could relate uh, to it from their own uh, lived experience. Uh, and this is something that uh, I think uh, other countries could could try to achieve right, how you mix your own roots in a way that makes it appealing to, to those that might not be from your country with these universal yeah. themes. Uh, but also, uh, a second important component uh, is uh, the way this culture has been inherited. So in the 2000s, uh, you saw so many South Korean uh, mythic studios, uh, later on film studios as well, and they try to reach out to a global audience uh, by the social media and back there was social media wasn't to like it is today but this was a very good distribution channel because you nobody know, can access it uh, but also especially young people that's how they consume uh, culture so so if a k-pop band uh, uh, wouldn't be uh, uh, the, the songs or uh, uh, wouldn't be uh, shown on a uh, tv show or they wouldn't be played in a radio station and uh, they would be distributed via uh, social media and today many of them of course don't become all uh, youtube hits and this is a global uh, platform so this is something that can you see uh other countries trying to manipulate some people say for example uh, thailand in the future could be the next uh, asian uh cultural uh, powerhouse in the past of course we had japan we have hong kong we had different of Tracer that may be able to read on the the, the Mojo and be able to to compete at the global level with South Korean uh, culture. Uh, One last thing that I would also uh, uh, emphasize about whether this can be uh, emulated or not, uh, which is that uh, this is probably the first culture has become globally successful without without having uh, a universal language, right? Uh, We are talking about English here that, that we can sort of understand, right? And I think that's something that other campus could look into, right? How they can incorporate their own culture, their own language, et cetera, et cetera, which is this is appealing to others overseas, uh, but also make some, some, some elements of uh, English or more universal languages that, for example, K-pop songs uh, do.
0: So I'd maybe, I'd like to kind of end by... Um... Maybe looking at kind of what's happened in the Korean Peninsula since since you finished the book. Obviously, writing a book is a long process. There's an editing. Um, the book gets finalized, and then the world keeps on, <laughs> the news keeps on happening. Um, so, so, I mean, given your work on the book, how have you seen some of the developments on this on the Korean Peninsula? Kind of, kind of since the book finished. Um, and maybe we'll start with Victor and go to Ramon. But you know, South Korea um has a new president. It does seem to have, carved a niche for itself in the arms industry, especially after Ukraine. Um, the North continues to be the North with missile tests and trying to maybe set up the next generation of leaders. Um, but in terms of kind of what, what's happening in Korea right now, um, h- how does that fit into kind of, kind of the story you're trying to tell in the book? Um, maybe let's start with Victor and then end with um, Ramon.
2: Um, so, I think in terms of the themes of the book, again, one of the themes of the book has been how when Korea has been weak, the external environment has really determined Korea's fate, for better or for worse. Um, you know, And like we said at the start of the podcast in the late 19th century, it uh, drove Korea into becoming a colony of one of the imperial powers, Japan, for half a century. Um, but then also during the Cold War, Cold War imperatives caused the United States to adopt Korea as a military treaty ally and then provide huge amounts of assistance to it to keep it secure and eventually help um, um, help lay the path, although the United States wasn't the only party, lay the path um, to, for Korea to become a democracy. So my point here is that uh, the external environment when Korea internally has been um, conflicted uh, has really been determinative of of the fate of Korea. And I think what we're seeing now is a Korea that's much more confident, at least I'm talking about a South Korea that's much more confident, that is affluent. Uh, that is the sixth strongest military in the world, the tenth largest economy in the world. as you mentioned earlier, discussed it with Ramon in terms of culture is is a trend setter now. Korea is the cutting edge, whether you're talking about memory chips or whether you're talking about pop music or the next Netflix uh, drama, you know, Korea is really sort of at the top of its game, if you will, South Korea. And I think what we're also seeing is that it's it's increasingly playing a global role. Um, again, whether we're talking about culture, whether we're talking about uh, uh, you know memory chips, bioscience, um, the arms in- industry, you mentioned Korea is really sort of on a global stage now. I wouldn't even say a middle power anymore, playing uh, uh, much more above the weight of a middle power. You know, it now participates in meetings of NATO leaders. Uh, it participated in the last G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. Um, it's um, a, a major player in, in environmental issues, climate change, um, and development assistance around the world. Uh, there's just a host of things where it plays on a global scale. Um, way off the peninsula uh, in ways that nobody could have imagined, you know, in 1953 at the end of the Korean War, right? This this year is the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. And it's just, no one could have imagined that South Korea could have done what it's doing now. And I think that is showing how it is. It has made itself much stronger, much sta- more stable, much more secure, such that his fate will be determined by korea and not by the external
1: environment again I, w- I would add to to this I, w- I want that to the south korean a little bit but uh we're able to, to discuss recent development in in, in south korea in north korea as well so we're able to discuss for example uh, kim chue right and uh, kim, Ch- kim Jong Un's daughter uh, making an appearance so so that's something that we were able to include in the book as well and as you said uh, um, missile tests that that continue, and also the, the COVID nineteen situation in, in in North Korea. So I was literally the first time to shut on its borders, even before before China, uh, and the last one to to open them. is still reopening them. So, so in I what we show as well, when we talk uh, about the North, is how the country seems to be setting itself for the next uh, generation to 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 take over, uh, but also how. Is different, is different position vis a vis South Korea has been exacerbated by, by the COVID 19 pandemic. Or, I mean, South Korea's response to the COVID 19 pandemic was, was was very good, one of the best ones in, in the world. And North Korea said the opposite by the first country shut down, the last one to open up. So that's the approach they, they, they took. And, and then uh, we have these credible reports about uh, the North Korean regime being this, this uh, uh, border wall. Uh, with China to try uh, to tighten the control over the, the population, where well, this is possible to the in-state Charmont is a completely uh, different question. So, so I think this that we show showing in, in the book, the growing difference between both of them, uh, has really uh, continued uh, in, in recent months and weeks. And it seems to me that it's going to continue uh, for the uh, foreseeable future. Um, we have the more confident and open South Korea that Victor has described and, and in the Roth. Uh, there seems to be a regime that doesn't know which uh, which direction to take, or if it's taking no direction, is actually to really uh, shut down the borders even more and, and, and look uh, uh, upon itself even more rather right, than trying to, to change the direction of the country. Well, I think that's a great place
0: to end our interview with Victor Cha and Ramon Pacheco Pardo on Korea, a new history of South and North. Um, I actually have two final questions for the both of you, uh, and maybe maybe Ramon can go first, and then Victor can go second. But the two questions are: um, where can people find your work, and uh, what's next? What might the next project be?
1: So uh, um, it, it has already uh, come out in, in Europe. book. I'm actually well, past passed few few days. I was uh, walking around uh, central London uh, where, where I live and it's in most bookstores, actually I have quite a few bookstores already. Uh, well, I'll show them actually, uh, as, as soon as you can uh, into, uh, in, in, inside, right. Uh, so, so it's uh, bright pink, the colors, this is to identify, you can certainly find it online. Uh, and actually a, a few days ago I was in, in, in South Korea, I was in Seoul. Uh, and they told me that, uh, in short been living in stock. Uh, but some by some of the bookstores uh in the in, in in the country uh it's already all being sold uh there uh, but also as i say you can find it online and uh, in, my, in my case what next uh, well i do uh, hope to be able to enjoy uh, the release of this book actually uh, for the next few weeks and 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 months. i mean i have a, a, an academic book on south I mean, out with columbia university press but i really hope to work enjoy the the release of this book, uh, you know, with the balance, uh, uh, interviews talking about it as much as possible, uh, or to, to savor, uh, really what has been a, a really enjoyable enterprise, which is, hey, buying a book, writing a book with, uh, with Victor, which is uh, one of my idols in this, on this field.
2: Um, well, uh, the, as Ramon said, the book has been released in Europe. It has not been released in the United States yet. So, um, um, so we haven't we haven't seen the reception here. The uh, the book I, I believe it's still the number one book on Amazon uh, for books on Korea. Admittedly, that's not a big market, but we'll take it. You know, it's, it's great to be able to say that you're number one on Amazon. Um, and I too really enjoyed doing this project with my co- with the, my co-author Ramon. It was really very easy to do, and um, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, my next project actually is, is something that I'm working on that's it's tangentially related to Korea. It's really focused more on China, uh, and in particular, um, uh, how, the, uh, how the world the multilateral trading order is going to deal with China's economic coercion, uh, China's use of economic coercion, its weaponization of economic interdependence. So a completely different project um, that uses a lot of trade data. Um, very different from uh, the book that we did on Korea. But of course, as some of your listeners may know, Korea, for both Ramon and I, Korea is our first and main love, and, um, and that's why we continue to research it. And I will continue to research it uh, after I finish this book on Chinese economic
0: coercion. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nick R. I. gordon. that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia, that's reviews plural, and you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network, NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for more news who's coming up on the show, uh, but before then, uh, Ramon, Victor, thank you so much for both of you for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for having us.